Well, good morning. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those front seats, I'm just saying. <laughs> when I was finishing a Bible college, uh, I felt very strongly that God wanted me to move to Columbus, Ohio. And I was going to be graduating in about four months or so, and I just, just really felt like God was leading me to move. But on paper, it didn't make a lot of sense. I was getting involved with a church that I had never been to. It was a church that had put on a conference up in Upper State New York that I had attended during the Christmas break. And that conference had so impacted me. It opened my eyes. It instilled just such a vision to be used by God. It was so so amazing in my own personal life that I thought as soon as I graduate, I'm going to move to Columbus. But... My dad was correct in asking me a lot of probing questions about the decision. Like he said, what are you going to do when you get to Columbus? I said, well, I I don't know. I don't have anything lined up there. He said, well, how are you going to support yourself? It's kind of a good question. I said, I don't know. I was told that some of the people from the church there can maybe help me get a job of some kind. And he asked, who are you going to live with? And I said, well, I don't know. I I heard there's some guys that have this big house near the Ohio State University, and they're willing to let me be a roommate, although I haven't met them yet. I mean, there were just a lot of these questions that didn't make sense from my dad's perspective and perhaps from the perspective of anyone that you talk to about this. If someone asked me for my counsel on such a decision and they didn't know what they were going to do or where they were going to go, I'd say, you know, the wise thing would be to go first and answer all the questions, but I just felt like God was leading me to do that. And I couldn't explain it to anyone. I wouldn't be able to prove it to anyone, but I was sure that that was the case. A little time after I had that conversation with my dad, my dad approached me a second time, and he really didn't want me to go. And he said, I have a a job opportunity for you. He said, somebody from the Department of Highways walked into the church uh, office, and my dad is the pastor of the church there, and he walked up to my dad, and he said, listen, I'm looking for one guy to you know, work with the Department of Highways this summer, and it's really a good-paying job. It was going to pay between 18 and $20 an hour, which back then, I hate to age myself, but back then, the, uh, the minimum wage was $3.10 an hour. And my dad said, you know, this job's yours. If you want it, and I said, well, I feel like God wants me to move to Columbus. And he said, well, no, you can still move to Columbus. We'll work all summer long. You can stay here for free and, and, you know, put together enough money so you'll be in a a stronger position when you do move. And once again, my dad was right. His counsel was completely right. But I felt like God was leading me to go right away. I couldn't, again, explain it to anyone. It didn't make sense. A little bit after this happened, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And one day, my dad walked into their bedroom, and she was sitting on the bed, and she was crying. And my dad asked her, why are you crying? And she said, because I have breast cancer. I may only have a year to live, and Tim is moving to Columbus. And my dad wanted me to know that that's what she thought. But then my dad said something that was very, very insightful. He said, you know, mom and I don't want you to move. You know, there's just a lot of questions about all of this. We, we would prefer you not move, but he said, if God is leading you to do it, you have to do it. 
You know, if God is the one directing you to do it, you have to listen to God and not what we say about this. And then he added, he said, I did the same thing with my parents when I was your age. I'd graduated from, you know, Bible college and God was leading me away and my parents didn't want me to go. But I did it. And it's because God was leading me. Probably a week or two after I had that conversation, uh, I packed up my things and I moved to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I ended up painting for the summer, painting houses. I'd never done that before. It was kind of fun, actually. My mom would end up living another 20 years before the cancer came back, and she succumbed to it the second time. Had I not made that decision to move to Columbus, I wouldn't be here today because that was the church that eventually sent me to Morgantown to help start the church here. And this brings me to my takeaway this morning, and that is that sometimes we have to listen to our heavenly Father and not our earthly family. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes there's a difference between what God wants us to do and maybe what our family wants us to do. Now, I'm not suggesting here today we don't listen to our family, especially our parents. Your parents know you. And when they have strong reservations about something that you're asking them about, you better listen. And your siblings know you as well. They could see things you might not want to face. And if you're younger, you know, children are to obey their parents. And so, of course, you need to listen to your parents in that case. But sometimes, as you get older, you are going to be led by God in a certain way. And maybe, maybe your f- parents aren't going to be on board with it. And then you have to decide. And this is true, by the way not just in terms of what God might be leading us to do, but it's, it's true in terms of our beliefs. Because I'm finding that more and more Christians are walking away from what is clearly taught in the pages of the Bible, or at least from my perspective. We need to have a certain humility about our interpretation of the Bible, of course. We don't always have it right. But I think a lot of Christians these days are walking away from or discounting what's taught in Scripture Various reasons saying it doesn't apply to us anymore. And then you may have this strong conviction. Wait a minute, no, this is the word of God. I got to stand on this thing. And suddenly you're going to find that there's kind of an issue between you and your family. This is going to happen sometimes. And what do we do when we're faced in that dilemma? Now today we're continuing our series titled Face to Face. We're looking at the encounters that Jesus had with various people. Today I want to talk about his family. And Jesus found himself frequently in situations where what his heavenly father was asking him to do was different than what his family wanted him to do. In fact, in every case in the Gospels, with the exception of when Jesus was on the cross with his mother Mary, in every case where there is a, a discussion between Jesus and family members, at least as far as I can see, it was this exact issue where Jesus was being led by his father this direction, but family members were trying to steer him this direction, and he then had a choice to make. Now, again, this whole subject requires humility on our part. And it really requires that we listen to what God says and we're again open to what people have to say to us. But today I want to look at five examples where this was the case. And I want to remind us that Jesus said this is part of what it means to follow Christ. 
In Luke chapter 14, 26 and 27, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own, and then lists the family members. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He is not promoting that you actively hate your parents or your your family members. That's not what he's talking about here. There are other scriptures that make it very clear that we're to love our parents, we're to love our siblings, we're to even speak well of them. There are a lot of scriptures like that. So what is Jesus talking about when he says you have to hate them? Well, he's talking about the subject of allegiance. He's talking about loyalty. And Jesus was also using kind of a comparative technique that was true in biblical times. Dr. Warren Wearsby explains it this way, the word hate does not suggest positive antagonism, but rather to love less. In other words, to hate, in the context in which he used it, means you have to love this thing less and you need to love this thing more. He goes on to say, our love for Christ must be so strong that all other love is like hatred in comparison. In fact, we must hate our own lives and be willing to bear the cross. After him was what Jesus said. He wasn't saying, well, you should despise yourself. No, he was saying, though, that we, we shouldn't love ourselves so much as to withhold it from God. If he asks us to lay down our lives for something. Now, Jesus used the same love-hate thing to talk about God and money. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, you can't love both God and money. You'll either love one and hate one, or you'll hate one and love one. You, can't, you cannot... Love them both. You can't serve them both. It's, again, it's an issue of allegiance. You choose which one defines my life. Which one do I listen to? Which one am I following? And if you choose to follow your heavenly father, it means you're going to view money differently. It's not that, like you hate money. We all love money in a sense. That's not what he's talking about here. But you view money in such a say, I, re- you know, I reject that if it comes in the way of what my heavenly Father is asking me to do. And in a similar sense, if we love money, there will not be the capacity in our hearts to love our heavenly Father properly because we've chosen. Our allegiance is with the money and not with our God. Now, I want to briefly look at five occasions where Jesus dealt with this this issue, where his heavenly Father was leading one way and the family was leading another. And, And it doesn't mean, by the way, the family was in sin in this way either. It just means that there was this kind of a battle going on, and, and of course, Jesus always chose correctly. First one is found in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, and Jesus was just a, a boy when this happened, 12 years of age. We read beginning in verse 41, every year his parents, referring to Jesus' parents, traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival, After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, who heard Jesus, were astounded at his understanding and his answers. 
Now, in the Jewish culture, there were three festivals that every Jewish male had to attend. At the time, they turned 12, which is, this is relevant to this story. This is the only story of Jesus' childhood, but it's when he turned 12 that we find him in the, in the temple here, and he's talking with the teachers of the law. It says he's asking questions of them and answering certain things. I believe he was taking on actually the role of a teacher here. This was an effective way of, of teaching in biblical times. You, you threw out some really probing questions and then you'd, if somebody answered kind of wrongly, you'd throw out a follow-up question and you'd kind of wrestle with it together. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. So Jesus' family, they all traveled here to Jerusalem. They were heading back and a full day passed and Jesus' parents didn't notice he wasn't there. Now that sounds horrendous. I mean, in our culture, can you imagine <laughs> A full day. Like where, where, but in biblical times, this would have been very acceptable because of the way they traveled. Dr. Warren Wearsby explains people traveled to the feasts in caravans, the women and children leading the way and setting the pace, and the men and young men following behind. Relatives and whole villages often traveled together and kept an eye on each other's children. And so there's just a big group, there's a huge group. And so it's like, well, I'm sure Jesus is over here, whatever. And so they're returning home from this festival and suddenly they realize they haven't seen him for a day and they look everywhere, he's not there. So they turn around and make their way back to Jerusalem. And the text indicates that they looked for him for three days and they could not find him. And then they finally came to the temple area and there they find him having this discussion with all these legal experts and these teachers, scribes and Pharisees, influential leaders, all these people here. And again, Jesus was taking on, I think, the role of a teacher here. And then his parents show up and that's where we pick up the story again in verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. Now it's important to realize that Jesus' actions on this occasion were not sinful. He did not sin against his parents. Had his parents said, you have to stay with the caravan and you're not, you know, don't go running off. And he, had he done it, he would have sinned. But he did not sin here. And the text makes the point. It closes the story by saying, and he went home and he obeyed them. He obeyed them in everything. But why did he do this? And what was this even about? You see, when he talked to his parents, his answer was unusual. He said, didn't you realize this is where I would be? Now again, I mentioned he had turned 12. A young Jewish man, when he turned 12, was considered what's called a son of the law. And this meant again that he had to attend at least three of the seven feasts of Israel. He had to physically go to Jerusalem. But he was now a son of the law and this is why he was in the temple. And not just the temple, he was at his father's house. And his heavenly father had led him this way. And so when, when this discussion comes up, he says to his mom, you know, didn't you know this is where I would be? I'm 12. You know, it sounds in our culture like I'm 12. I'm 12. 
Don't you realize that from now on, you know, I'm, I'm under new management. I'm listening to my heavenly father. But let's quickly go to the second example. This is the only, by the way, story we have in the Bible of when Jesus was a child. So we skip forward to when Jesus was beginning his public ministry. Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. And apparently, we don't know whose wedding it was, but it was somebody that was closely related to Jesus' mother, Mary. And I say that because when the wine ran out at this feast, Mary... Jesus' mother felt the responsibility to do something about it, you know, to step in there. Now, biblical times, a wedding feast lasted for days. It wasn't a few hours on a, a day. It lasted for days. So you can imagine how this could happen. But this was a major faux pas in the Jewish culture. You don't run out of wine. So let's pick up the story, though, in John 2, 1 through 5. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman, Jesus asked? My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, let me mention quickly again that when Jesus addresses his mother as woman, it was not disrespectful. Don't you try it. Unless you want to get slapped. But in the culture of the day, that was not disrespectful. But what Jesus says to her, this question is very revealing. You know, the question, it's translated in my Bible, what has this concern of yours to do with me? What does this concern of yours have to do with me? The more literal Greek translation of this is what to me, to you. And my Bible study has a note about this that says what it means is you and I see things differently. Now what we have here is a typical mother pushing her son forward. I don't, I don't fault any mother for doing that. And Jesus was 30 at this point. This is the time like he should be launching into his thing. You know, if he was going to be a teacher of the law or a rabbi, you know, that started at the age of 30. And so they run out of wine. And, and I don't know how she knew he could do something about it, but she did. I think she had faith. Because I don't believe that Jesus had performed any miracles until this point. I know there's some fanciful stories out there about when Jesus was a young boy and he fashioned a bird out of the dirt and then he blew into it and it flew away and he impressed his friends. But I don't think there have been any miracles. The text even says this was his first miracle that he performed. But she knew that he could do something about it. And so she approaches him and his response is, well, you know, you and I see things differently. But he accommodated her request. He said to some servants there, fill up these large containers. They were these these uh, jars that would hold 20 and 30 gallons of water and he, and he said fill them up and, and then Jesus turned the water into wine and of course it ended up being the better wine. It was a picture of the fact that the new covenant was better than the old. So Jesus did accommodate her and he was respectful but he still had to say what he had to say. I'm not on your timetable. When he says the statement, my hour has not yet come, you know what's ironic about that? That's a statement related to his death. Commentators are pretty much in agreement that when he said my hour has not yet come, he's talking about the cross. And ironically, his mother in pushing him forward, saying get going, 
was actually pushing him closer to that, to that hour. But Jesus was under different management. He was, he was following his father's timetable, not his mother's. And I mean his heavenly father. But let's move forward in our story to the, I think, one and only time that Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth. So this is still fairly early on in probably his ministry, maybe a year into it or whatever. Jesus and his disciples arrived in Nazareth, his hometown, and on the Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue there and began to to teach the people, and they were astonished. His teaching was so remarkable, and also they they were amazed at the fact that he had performed amazing miracles, or at least they had heard he had. I don't know if they had seen any miracles, but, but the whole country was talking about the fact that this, this guy is going around and healing people and performing amazing miracles. And so he's up there talking, and they begin talking among themselves like, isn't that like, that's the little kid that used to run around here in our town. I mean, that's how they talked about him. We pick up the story, Mark 6, beginning in verse 3. They said, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Then Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. So... He was not able to do any miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And yet he was amazed at their unbelief. Now notice again, I've mentioned this before, that this verse clearly indicates and other passages indicate that Jesus did indeed have siblings, which I've always thought was just remarkable. I just can't imagine what it'd be like if Jesus were your brother. Kind of a goody two-shoes type, maybe. (laughs) Never got disciplined. Why are you always spanking me, you know, kind of thing? I don't know what it was like for them, but it, it, I could see, also understand how it'd be hard for them to believe. How, you know, he's so common if he lives in your household. And that's what was happening here. We don't know for sure, by the way, if Jesus' family was standing there when all this happened, although they, they probably were. I think they were. But in either case, Jesus made it very clear. Prophets are welcome everywhere except in their own hometown where they came from and in their own household and among their own relatives, they're not going to be received. They're not going to be accepted. And Jesus knew that. Now, this story did not end well. Luke records the same story and it includes some additional details. It includes some things that Jesus said to his home people people from his hometown. They were really, really insulting things that he said to them. And he wasn't doing it to insult them. He was doing it to wake them up, to say, listen, I mean, he looked at their unbelief. He was just so astonished by their unbelief. And then he began to tell them stories about others that didn't believe in the past and how they're just like it. And the Luke account has it that the people of Nazareth drove them out of town and tried to push them off a cliff. That's how this encounter in his hometown and among his relatives, that's how that story ended. Of course, God protected him. He didn't end up dying. I can relate to the story, though, because I know there have been times where I felt God wanted me to communicate things with maybe family members or maybe uh, 
friends or other people. It was really hard to do, and I felt God was saying it, but I was too afraid. Too afraid of what they would think. What would people think if I took a stand on this particular thing? And again, I think it takes wisdom to know when to speak and when not to. And some of the reason we're opposed sometimes has nothing to do with the fact that we're standing for the truth and they're not. Sometimes it's because we're so self-righteous and other things. But this wasn't true of Jesus. He, he spoke the way he did because they needed to hear it. And he didn't care what they thought. Now we fast forward a little bit. I suspect this next story took place in the middle of Jesus' ministry. It's Mark chapter 3, 31 to 35. We read, then his mother and brothers came. Now Jesus is doing ministry in a kind of a house situation. His mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called. A crowd was sitting around Jesus and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here's my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. He completely ignored his family. He blew them off. Now, this is a little surprising if you think about it. Would any of you do this? You know, if I were in some kind of big meeting or this or that, you know, but it was informal and all of a sudden I got word, hey, your, your family's out, out there. They want to talk to you. I'd say, well, just one moment here, and I'd go out and... Jesus' reaction, it's like, who are they? And you realize, boy, some kind of... Something's going on here. I'll tell you what's going on. If you read 11 verses earlier, you find out why they went to see Jesus. Mark 3 and verse 20. It says, then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that there were not so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. This was an intervention. That's what was going on here. They were coming to drag him away. And of course, Jesus was listening to his father. Now, they were concerned that he wasn't eating. You know, he was so busy and this and that, and we just need to protect him from himself. Their motives might have been really good, you know. Although Jesus said, I think often he had this perspective, my food is to do the will of my Father. That's what he was doing on this occasion. He was listening to his heavenly Father. And the crowd served as a good buffer so they could not get to him, so they could not drag him away, so they could not follow through with their agenda as opposed to God's agenda for him. It was not time. Now Jesus again was really in tune with his heavenly Father so he could discern a lot of these things and I don't think it'll be quite as simple for us, but at least the line was drawn and he knew it. But let's look at one last example that takes place right at the very end then of Jesus' ministry, right before he was arrested. This one's found in John chapter seven. And of course, this whole series is based on the gospel of John and the encounters Jesus had with people. So here's one of the ones he had with his brothers. Beginning in verse one, we read, after this, Jesus traveled to Galilee since he did not want to travel to Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. 
For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, like these miracles or whatever, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to the festival yet because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Once again, there's that same expression, my time has not yet come. Jesus knew the implication of this. He knew that people were hunting for him. He knew that they would expect that he would be there because he was required to go to this festival, so they were going to be looking for him, and his brothers are pushing him, come on, go. Jesus said, no, my time's not yet. You go. I'm not going to. The perspective of his brothers, though, is so, so worldly here. I mean, it makes it clear that they didn't believe in him at this point. Now, they would later. You know, the book of James in the New Testament, it's one of the brothers of Jesus. Book of Jude, a brother of Jesus. Eventually, they did put their faith in him, but not at this point. And Jesus knew that if he showed up on their timetable, it'd be a real problem. And so he refused to go. But their worldly perspective was nobody that wants to be famous and popular does things in a closet. You know, you go out into public places. If you're going to do these miracles, do it so everybody can see. So, you know, people just, wow, you know. That was their perspective because they did not believe in him and they did not understand what he was all about. Jesus' response to them was, it's easy for you to talk this way because you're of the world. The world doesn't hate you. Frankly, he was saying to them, you're just like they are. You're no different than they are, you know? But the world does hate me because I, I confront the world about its sin and this and that. And again, a line was drawn here. And so we read in verse 10, the end of this story, after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly, The Jews were looking for him at the festival saying, where is he? But let me bring this home. Again, Jesus throughout his ministry was facing this exact situation where there were ones in his own family that were trying to pull him a different direction than what his heavenly father was trying to get him to do. Now, on the one hand, I want us to understand and hear the message that I think we should respect and love our family I think we need to honor them and we need to listen to them. I think it's many times wise to seek their counsel. And if you're under their home and under their authority, you are to, children are to obey their parents. And so that's all true. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that there will be ones in our family or extended family that are going to want to hinder us from doing what we feel God wants us to do. Ones that won't understand why we're doing this or that as we're just trying to live out our faith. We're going to be running into people who have different perspectives of things because they do not believe the Bible's the word of God. And they're going to despise you because you got this perspective. Now, please, don't be obnoxious about the perspective. That's where I think we get in trouble sometimes. And we need humility again to say, well, maybe my perspective isn't right about this. And so as we're examining all these things, in order to sort this out properly, I think it requires a really close relationship with Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons I encourage you all the time, spend time in God's word and prayer. Get to know the God of the Bible and listen to his voice because this is the thing that'll help us know when to say yes and when to say no. But 
Make no mistake about it, you will be challenged. And what I want to encourage us to do is to stand firm. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And other things we're not to allow to come in the way of these things. And Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you, if people can despise the fact you even live a certain way. You know, are you trying to be a goody two-shoes? Look at the, the biblical her, uh, heroes that we celebrate. Weren't they persecuted? Joseph, brothers tried to kill him. David, his older brother screamed at him at the battle where he killed Goliath. But they were sure. And people won't like it. And they'll be mad about the way you live your life. John talks about this in 1 John 3, 11 through 13. When he talks about why did Cain kill Abel? He explains it. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why would he murder his own brother? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then John brings it home. Don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. And so I'm just saying, stand firm. I'm saying be humble and most important in all of it, love well. Because we're really, we're called to love. Love well. And I might add this, it's not our job to judge people who have different perspectives. It's not our job to be judging family members and this and that. That's not our job. And that's what I'd like to address next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of your son Jesus who um, just faced decisions and choices where he listened to your voice and we want to be ones, O oh Lord, who do the same. So give us understanding. Pray you help us to evaluate things properly. We want to walk closely to you so we know your will. And when you lead us in a way, when you say, I want you to do this, that we would have the courage to take that step and hold on to the truth that's found in the pages of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.